Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here in the Ecosiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. As world leaders struggle to address the coronavirus pandemic, one thing has become certain. This is more than a health crisis. From COVID's impact on economic systems, ecological systems, and systems of production and consumption, to its effects on systems of governance, to its exacerbation of injustices experienced by the poor and vulnerable, it's clear that the global challenges we face are all interconnected. On this episode of the Ecosiv podcast, Andrew Schwartz moderates a virtual panel with experts from around the world for a probing conversation on today's global crisis and why a systems approach to civilizational change is fundamental for a healthy future. The five panel participants include environmental activist Bandana Shiva, economists Elliot Harris and Guna Joan, author Jeremy Lint, and finally, co-president of the Club of Rome, Mampella Rompelli. And welcome to today's dialogue on COVID-19 and global systems change. Uh, I'm Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and executive vice president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization, director of the Center for Process Studies and professor at Claremont School of Theology at Willamette University. I have the privilege today of being the moderator for our event um, and am actually thrilled about our panel of globally recognized experts um, from around the world talking about this novel coronavirus crisis. So working actually from my left, we joining us from New York, USA is Elliot Harris. Elliot is Assistant Secretary General of Economic Development and Chief Economist for the Department of Economic and Social Affairs at the United Nations. He is an expert in international economics and development policy analysis with a special focus on macroeconomic policies for resilient and sustained economic development which is in line with the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Joining us all the way from South Africa is Mampela Rampeli. <coughs> Mampela is an activist, medical doctor, academic, businesswoman, political thinker. That wasn't all enough. She's, uh, she was a major figure of the anti-apartheid movement, was the former managing director at the World Bank, and now serves as co-president of the Club of Rome. She continues to be a leading voice on socioeconomic issues in South Africa and around the world. Mampela, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Joining us all the way from India is Vandana Shiva. Vandana is an author, scientist, activist, who Forbes magazine identified as one of the seven most powerful women on the globe. Not intimidating at all. She is founder of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology, and is a leader among um, those who criticize social, economic, and ecological cost of corporate-led globalization, as well as the threats of the dominant paradigm of non-sustainable industrial agriculture. So I look forward to hearing all that you have to say about the coronavirus response. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, also joining us uh, from South Korea is Gona Jung. He is professor of economics at Hanshin University. Uh, his recent work on behavioral economics and economic philosophy has led to a rethinking of economic systems for ecological civilization. He recently directed a project to develop a happiness index as a genuine progress index for 16 local governments in South Korea. Guna is a member of the Harmony with Nature Project of the United Nations. He's co-director of EcoCiv Korea. And for the past four years, He's been director of the International Transition City Conferences hosted by the Seoul City Government. Gona, it's great to have you here. Thank you for staying up so late this evening. Thank you for having me here. Finally, uh, last but not least, joining us from Berkeley, California, USA, is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is an author and thought leader who specializes in uh, integral studies, systems change, and patterns of, patterns of meaning for civilizational transformation. He's a founder of the nonprofit Leology Institute, 
which is dedicated to holistic approaches to sustainable ways of living by integrating East Asian practices with the findings of modern science. Jeremy, it's wonderful to have you this morning, early for you. <laughs> Thank you, happy to be here, Andrew. Good. Let's dive right in. Um, you know, I think one of the common themes uh, that sort of cuts across most of your work is this insight that our society needs to change at a level far deeper than most people realize. And for many, I think COVID-19 is revealing the complexity and the interrelatedness of the systems of society, right? Economic and social, educational systems and all the implications. In what ways, if any, does an adequate response to the coronavirus pandemic require global systems change? I would say it's absolutely fundamental that we take this crisis as an opportunity to rethink how we as a human race engage with our presence on this planet whose boundaries we have already breached, which is why we have struggled with uh, climate emergencies across the globe. And the coronavirus is one of the multiple crises we are going to have to face. We mustn't think of this as simply a problem that's arisen because people behave badly in one part of the world. It is about the breaching of ecological boundaries and the destruction of habitats for small and large living things. And once you breach those boundaries, we end up with these zoonotic diseases that we don't have a way of addressing. So I think this is a wake up call mm. for us to listen very carefully to how and what needs to change for humanity to behave in a manner which can promote well-being of people and planets in a sustainable way. Bendona, I expect you probably agree with her. I totally agree with her. I, in fact, did the paper as soon as um, the corona issue started to blow out called Reflections on Coronavirus, the Ecology of the Coronavirus. Uh, you know, it is about the rupture of boundaries, both ecosystems boundaries, we are invading into forests, whether it's a, Ebola or it's uh, 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 COVID, they're all tr transmissions from animals on whom these viruses are safe to humans where they become invasive because we've invaded in the first place. But they're also related to the fact that there are no limits of integrity. You know. I started to save seeds 32 years ago because the idea that seeds could be manipulated, genetically engineered, just to take a patent on seed, assuming then that you can now pretend to be the creator. I say GMO for them means God move over. No, the seed is not an invention. It's a continuity of evolution embodying all the relationships. And we know the manipulation of animals, whether it was a mad cow disease, or the antibiotic resistance uh, from uh, animals being overdosed with antibiotics because factory farms are disease-creating factories. Um, and then we know from all the data that's coming that with existing chronic diseases like cancer, like heart problems, the rate of mortality shooting up from 1% to eight, nine, 10%. So we have to handle both sides of the health emergency and address it as an ecological emergency of exactly, as was mentioned, our place on the planet. And the reason I'm so critical of economic globalization, it was born in front of us. It died in Seattle in front of us, but they continued fast forward. And the idea that you can have limitless extraction of resources limitless movement of goods, and all you have to do is limit the movement of people, is not going to bring a solution because the cause is the extractive nature of an extractive economy. And if we don't revisit the economic paradigm with issues of well-being, with issues of happiness, with true indicators, 
of what makes the economy as the art right. of living, we won't be able to crack this one. Or, but, you know, every five years, there's a new epidemic. And while everyone's obsessed with COVID, there'll be another little virus peeping out of another forest. And there's no way we can address it as a mechanistic, militaristic, Cartesian problem with the old mindset that created it in the first place. That is fantastic, because it leads directly into my next question. Um, many people assume that working to transform systems is at odds with focusing on addressing immediate problems. I think a lot of people think that responding to COVID, the COVID crisis um, is so urgent that we can't actually worry about broader economic and justice issues right now. But in your views, uh, is it possible to provide relief to immediate coronavirus-related issues while also providing a foundation for long-term results? Yes. If, if I could come in there, in fact, I think that's a core part of the message of the United Nations in this particular crisis situation is that, yes, it is absolutely imperative that we respond immediately to prevent the damage from getting any deeper, because as it gets deeper, of course, the uh, consequences become permanent. But in setting in place these emergency measures, we should be mindful of the ability to build back better, to recover well. And so when we put in place the measures that are going to absorb some of the immediate impact, we should be thinking about, well, is it possible for these measures to become a part of our systems? And around the world, the measures that have been put in place have had a common element of being social protection measures in many respects, helping individuals deal with the impact of the crisis on their personal lives. But in many countries, these measures have been ad hoc because the systems have been lacking. We don't have in place everywhere systems that would automatically engage in cases of shock or upheaval to provide the kind of support to individuals that we're trying to provide now. And I think that's a critical lesson that we can learn. Let us try to find a way in which these ad hoc measures that we're putting in place as a matter of urgency and emergency, make those a part of the way our fabric, uh, the, the fabric of our society is woven together. That this is an integral part of our systems, of our social protection systems, so that the next time a shock like this happens, or some other kind of shock, that degree of additional resilience is there. It allows people to absorb the shock more effectively, recover more rapidly, and it prevents the sort of upheaval that leads to damaging and permanent uh, social dislocation. Jeremy, I think you wanted to get in on that. Yeah, yeah, so kind of um, following on from what Elliot is saying is, um, you know, my thought about what's key about the, this coronavirus right now is we've got to look at the larger and larger scope of its impact on our world because it's really not just about the virus itself. And I, what I'd say to, to, to all of us in this conversation, however big we're thinking about the coronavirus and its impact, we need to think bigger. I think that what we're going to find is, just like we're getting used to seeing this concept of exponential curves with the number of people getting infected, we need to think exponentially about its impact on global systems. It's not just the virus. I think a couple of years from now, the virus will you know, we'll have a vaccine, things will be relatively under control. But what it's doing is it's, it's this catalyst to a, a set of interlocking systems that have already been so unstable that have been built on this, uh, on this growth paradigm, just like Vandana was talking about, that it's going to cause all kinds of dislocations from this globalized economy, all kinds of dislocations in this incredible inequities we're seeing in the world that will lead to far greater changes than even anything that we've been looking at right now. So even now we're looking a few weeks out to things like uh, GDP of countries drastically cutting, massive unemployment claims, all these kind of things. Even these will be just the beginnings of this kind of unlocking set of cascading dominoes that will be affected by the coronavirus. I think it's not too big to, uh, I think when history looks back at this time, we'll see that the changes that it will initiate will probably be on the scale of something like the Second World War. Like, yeah, forget about the 2008 uh, Great, Great Recession, all that kind of stuff. We're talking about something that may lead to the end of this whole neoliberal paradigm that has uh, taken over the world right now. But the big question is, what kind of different society will we see after things resettle? And I think that is something we really need to be looking at and thinking about. Well, I hope that's something we can talk about now. 
Um, yeah. what, what do we imagine would, would come after? What are we moving toward? Because it does seem that the economic effects of coronavirus have resulted in what we might say is a sort of economic degrowth, that we're, we're in this time of sort of widespread shutdown of business as usual. Um, I'm hearing that you all think that this is now an opportunity to begin a global phase shift of our social and economic systems. What does that look like? Could I just say one thing? I think we should listen from Korea because they didn't wait for a vaccine to bring yeah. it under control. Wherever yeah. there is justice, wherever there is responsibility to people, mm -hmm. there has been actions that don't leave large numbers of people as throwaway people. Now, I come from a country where half the country is in what they call the unorganized sector. I call it the self-organized sector. You know, I pull a vegetable cart, I bring some vegetables. I'm a farmer, small-scale farmer, and 80% of the food is provided by small-scale farmers in the world, according to FAO data. Uh, what this has done is there are people having to walk, you know, for the students living abroad, flights were arranged to bring them back. But for the people who've been thrown out of work in the cities, they're walking 800 miles, 900 miles, because there is no arrangement of transport. And everyone is saying, we'll die of hunger before we die of corona. I think we mustn't ignore the fact that we are not the only ones envisioning the future. We are, Absolutely. but yeah. the, the, those who got us into the problem in the first place, those who wrote the rules of neoliberal globalization and harvested it to become the billionaires are already writing new rules. And to me, this will be an issue of the earth democracy pillar of ecological civilization. How do we ensure that people, their livelihoods, justice, their rights to health, their rights to food are all deepened as a process of this crisis that has connected us as one world and we will not allow it to divide us further. Kuno, would you like to respond to that? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is really phenomenal. Yeah, we are witnessing a global uh, hyper-connected society and local is really tightly connected to the global. And I would pick some keywords of this hyper-connected uh, global society as synchronicity or concurrence and sensitivity and vulnerabilities. For Korea, yeah, the, the conservative media and opposite political parties were very critical to the current approach by the Korean South Korean governments, despite the, the very positive uh, evaluation from abroad. So, uh, the, especially they are very critical for not blocking entry from China. So, so, uh, and, but the global evaluation of foreign media on Korea's approach was very positive and real-time connection with these responses were helpful here to, to go against the political uh, uh, blame from the opposite parties. And in addition, also news on rapid and large-scale stimulus packages is also rapidly introduced to Korean people from abroad and helps to overcome domestic opposition from the opposite political parties. In Korea, in terms of the Korean bureaucrats, especially they are all they are very elite from studied in the United States and PhDs in the United States. And the key concept what what uh, possessing what is possessing the economic elites is the fiscal conservatism. So they yeah those kinds of yeah in terms of the, uh, the the addressing the disease we are very successful in some sense but not yet to be to be finished. But but in terms of the addressing the issues of economic activities, they are very stereotyped, not innovative, and very conservative. But the, the, in the good sense of connectivities from global, the medias from the, the medias uh, introduce many different type of very rapid and quick and massive uh, 
stimulus package programs help Korean people to understand that, wow, this is also a possible and necessary approach for the government to do for the, for the people. Mm. And yeah, I think the crisis that is comparable to or worse than the Great Depression. As an economist, I would like to point out a dilemma in the solution. The dilemma is that infectious diseases are resolved only when people stop working. And economic recession is resolved only when people are actively working and get connected. So this is a kind of dilemma. And in between, we, they, they, they provide us an opportunity to think about the, the degrowth issues or the basic income issues. So local leaders, local governments are now uh, trying to have a pilot programs of, of basic incomes in terms of yeah, during the disastrous period. So we are very quickly and easily pass over the next stages of uh, basic income uh, discourses. Very fortunate in that sense. But as I expect or I, as I anticipate is that the long-term very hard great recession and depression would come and then we are yet to have any concrete idea how to deal with their difficulties. Pampela, you wanted to add something? Yes, I think uh, the point is that the response, the appropriate response to this crisis is to think about what would a post-pandemic pandemic scenario, what, does, what are the kind of scenarios that we are looking at post this crisis? And I think this is where the big opportunity lies because this is where we need to be asking ourselves what kind of new civilization, ecological civilization with the kind of well-being focus as the measure of progress, what would it look like? Because right now, what you are all, we are all describing is a global economic system that is driven by so-called financial and economic value. Now, we have seen that value evaporating overnight because it's constructed value, right? Finance is it's, it's a tool of exchange which has been hijacked to be a tool of control. Right. The dollar, however broke the US economy is, they can lend into bankruptcy, they can have deficit with two, three trillion, but a small country that's got a debt of less than half a billion is told that they will tighten their, their belts. Now, that I think what's happening now is that that whole pretense has been blown open. So debt financing or, or worrying about debt has gone out through the window. Now, the question is, how do we who are the catalyst for change, wherever we are, drive a conversation about the values of the new system, what they should look like. What we talk about a new civilization, what would characterize it? Because I think we need to fundamentally reframe what is called economics, what is called finance, and have a completely new approach where the, the basis is what are the values that should characterize us as a human race? Solidarity, common <laughs> public goods that are common uh, assets for everybody, and how we, in our even our discourse, our languages to change. I really am uncomfortable about degrowth because growth is a nonsense. This exponential, nonstop growth we have. We have had the limits to growth in the in the in the Club of Rome since 1972, which right. demonstrated just beyond that you can't have exponential. Growth. And of course, if you want to see what exponential growth does, look at what the coronavirus exponential mm -hmm. infections do. So we really need to grow up beyond growth and start talking about real values and talk about what 
what would characterize the kind of economic engagement and activities, for example, that are being dis described by Bandana in terms of really making a contribution to a better mm. and a more well-being focused community, country, and the globe. And I think the virus has probably done what none of us could do alone or even in a group. That tiny little animal is challenging the dominance of the dollar, the dominance of neoliberal discourse, and the pretense that there is something sacred about finance as a tool, and all of the framing of what makes for development. And so we have a wonderful opportunity to yeah. completely rethink yeah. what the what I love about world should look like. What I love about what all of you are saying is that it's not simply new systems of economics, but we need to, to rethink our values that are sort of grounding these systems, right? So it, it occurred to me that sort of as fear sets in in this pandemic, and I, I think this is something happening around the world, but that there's this increased stockpiling of resources. So I know in the U.S., for example, we've got this ridiculous phenomena of like the hoarding of toilet paper. Uh, mm -hmm. So in response to that, it's interesting. Many businesses are actually instituting policies to reduce this hoarding, ensuring that there's enough resources for everybody. Do you think that there's a parallel here uh, this, uh, in the sort of stockpiling of supplies during quarantine and then the radical accumulation of wealth such that eight men can possess as much as half of the planet combined. They collected toilet paper, you're so right. When you think <laughs> of the fact that is right. purely a construct, you know, the dollar note is merely a promise to the bearer, then it is toilet paper. I mean, communities that are getting displaced in India by mines and um, dams, they always say they want to give us pieces of paper and take away the earth who is our mother. Yeah. So, and I would just add to Mampele's amazing uh, discussion that one tool is money, which became finance a ruler and created the billionaire class, which worked beyond democracy. And the second is tools, which for the first time in human history, are being turned into a new religion to dictate terms to the rest of society, rather than letting people make technology choices according to appropriateness, according to ecological impact, and according to full democratic participation. I think these two false religions of money and technology have to be revisited in this crisis. I Elliot, I hope you can speak to this as somebody who specializes in rethinking economics for equality and resilience. I, I, I must admit here that I'm a little distressed in all of the discussions that we've had thus far that no reference has been made to the sustainable development agenda, so the 2030 agenda for sustainable development, which if you think about it and if you read it carefully, does set out the blueprint of what we want to achieve. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the buzzwords of globalization and neoliberalism and so on and so forth, but if we focus in on what countries have said they want when they step away from the politics and look to the future, as they did in 2015, as they did in Paris in 2015, dealing with the question of climate change, we will see that people do are capable of recognizing where things are going wrong and what needs to change. Now, I will also say, as someone who spends a, a quite large amount of my time talking to private finance, that a change is afoot even there. Now, the principles of, of sustainable development making their way into the decision makers, uh, into the decision making in financial institutions, it is not a part of your daily discourse around the table. It certainly isn't a part of what you see uh, talked about in newspapers, but the change is happening simply because Anybody who looks into the future sees a change has to occur. We cannot continue the way we have been thus far, taking unlimited advantage of the Earth's limited resources and expect us to be able to continue to function the way we are functioning indefinitely into the future. That's, that's clearly un, impossible and unlikely. But the change is happening. What we need now is to accelerate that change and make it visible. And that will, then will, will underscore to us the reason why it is necessary for us to think about work as decent work, the way the ILO has been um, advocating for the last 15 years, it's not just 
that we have a job, but it's what kind of job we have that gives us a certain human dignity, that gives us a sense of security, that makes it something that is part of a healthy life. Uh, we were talking about the measurement of well-being. We understand that GDP is not a measurement of, of progress if it doesn't take into account the impact on human society, on the physical environment around us, and GDP does not do that. We know this, and we're working to come up with different ways of measuring progress that take these things into account. I think it is perhaps time for us now to look to what we have already agreed needs to happen, to see how we can use the advantages that we have created and take advantage also of the opportunities present themselves to focus on that, drive it forward, because these are the answers to the problems that we face. The sustainable development goals speak to every single one of the problems that we've talked about. We speak about the billionaire class, look at SDG number 10 on inequality. We speak about the climate change, look at SDG 13. We speak about the health epidemic that we're facing, look at SDG 3. It is all there. And, and Elliot said, SDG 2, zero hunger, you're forgetting it. And no, I think I'm that's... Forgetting it, please. What no, I'm but saying, I think it's a very important issue. We're talking about all sorts of uh, large-scale labeled approaches but we do know, we have already decided what we can do to fix the fundamental problems that we have. I'm saying let us not lose sight of that, even in a crisis like this. Let us take advantage of what we know and the fact that we're coming together to drive home not just the immediate response to the crisis, but also to put ourselves on a track that allows us to realize those goals. And then we will respond to all of those questions that are pre preoccupying all of you. Could I just say two quick things before I leave? Sure. Yes, the first please. is that already the EPA has said in America that because of corona, all environmental protection laws are being put in deep freeze. Then when we know that the roots of these epidemics is environmental destruction, to decide to create more conditions and context for new epidemics isn't the smartest thing to do. So it's not the case that because the SDGs were signed and written that they are being adhered to. Corona sometimes is being used to undo them. Second is, you know, I work with peasants of India. I, involved, I got involved 45 years ago with peasant women who protected the forests of the Himalaya. And for them, their rights and the rights of the forest were not separate. Monsanto, my dear, dear friend Monsanto, and now buyer, say that it's undignified and not decent to work on land. We need farming without farmers. The peasants I work with think it's the most dignified thing to take care of Mother Earth. So who decides what's decent work is the democratic question. The person engaged in work or someone who wants to get rid of them. Um, I, just, uh, I agree that we have the SDGs. There are, however, serious issues in that. Those SDGs, my brother, we will never meet unless there is a fundamental change in our consumption patterns, we just don't have the number of planets that will produce the resources at the rate at which we are consuming them. So SDGs are a great idea, but we need to change the fundamentals to create an environment where it will be affordable for anybody and everybody not to go to bed hungry. But the way we are going about it is to try and add the SDGs to a world which is untransformed. It ain't going to happen. I'm afraid to say, because we'll need three planets to meet the SDGs if we don't change the consumption patterns of the likes of you and I, who eat so much that we, our biggest concern is now during this lockdown, we're going to put on weight. That's the issue. Jeremy, you had something. So, yeah, I think, may, may I leave now? Some, may I leave? It's pouring <laughs> rain and I need to walk across. Thank you all. It was so Thank wonderful. You, I don't know what else happens with this interaction, but I love you all. Yeah, this love was wonderful. Too. And I hope we'll keep in touch. Thank you. For the post for the post corona period and the post corona vision. Thank you all. And thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Yeah. So yeah, um, what I really want to add is, is just again, sort of thinking about scope. Like I'm concerned that some of these conversations, some of these conversations, taking place as if the world 
is the same kind of world that we've been living in for years, that the SDGs would develop to um, uh, attend to. And as if coronavirus is one little sort of spike, and then we sort of go back to uh, how did that change, like the direction we're going in uh, already. We've got to understand that coronavirus is like a crucible um, that where things that might have taken 20, 30 years to develop can be happening in just a few weeks, where um, the, so many different ideas get amplified and shifted so that the, the, our absolute fundamentals of our world will look different once this whole system resettles. We've got to understand that. We need to understand that the, there are great threats to this as well as opportunities. The threats are that um, we could turn like, things like we could be looking at a new society in the future that's basically authoritarian surveillance states where all the kind of extra surveillance to monitor the transmission of coronavirus, all these things become the norm and where uh, the same authoritarian regimes that we are so concerned about that have already uh, sprung up so many places around the world just get strengthened by these fear of outsiders, etc. We need to be very aware that right now there's other groups of people talking about coronavirus as this opportunity to impose those kinds of uh, systems on us and like where these internet giants right. become even more dominant. But the opportunities are, and to Manfella's point really I think is so key, it's it's the potential is for a revolution in values. What I think we'll, we're going to be seeing is that as the reactions to these inequities and start to become more and more extreme, people are going to realize that so many of these, these kind of individualist, neoliberal um, set of values that people have accepted are utterly unacceptable. And I think what all is also happening is right now we're seeing the beginnings of this burgeoning sense of community collaboration. Um, a sense of altruism that people are really like uh, feeling into, a sense of communities working together to come up with their own solutions because the uh, leadership are completely failing at the helm. And these are the kinds of things that if they develop, and I think we all have a part to play in helping them de to develop, can lead to a new set of values as a foundation for that new system that can be there in place. So instead of this authoritarian surveillance state, there is a possibility for a new system that looks closer to the kind of ecological civilization that many of us get excited about and uh, uh, see as a potential vision. One where we have much more local um, interaction, local production, and, and much more reduced and simplified consumption. But where there's also this kind of globalization of ideas, of a shared sense of human community, a shared sense of as a global community, we've got to deal with these global problems, but we're dealing with them at the local level, and we're dealing with them through values of fairness, reciprocity, altruism. These are the values that have the potential to really open up that have been kind of shut down over the last few decades. So I think we need to be aware of the threats, but the opportunities that all of us can get involved in to reframe the conversation and boost these things as they, as they develop, not just in the next few weeks and months, but over the next few years before this new system resettles. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. I, it, it seems to me that, that we all are sort of agreeing on the, the kinds of values and the kind of future we'd like to see, right? A more sustainable and just world, um, a world that works for all, an ecological civilization. There's lots of ways we could describe it. But but the question, the challenge, it seems, is, is sort of how do we get there, right? Um, so one, one question that's coming from our audience is, what is the role of social enterprise in developing localized resilience for those most affected by climate change? Any thoughts to that? Guna? Yeah. Uh, before the, answering the questions, by the the, the 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 people the pro, the person yeah I think uh, yeah we yeah we can say some uh, some type of uh, approaches different approaches at the individual level self reflection mm -hmm. on the problems and costs of the status quo is very important so for example yeah the the, the value of inclusion is now we are experiencing from the virus so it can not it doesn't the virus does not stop at the race or national border or or the rich and the poor so everybody shouldn't be safe if if uh 
should be safe if I want to be safe. So that is that means that the 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 value or the real importance of the inclusion, and at, so that would be and the importance of the the the, the urgency of tra transition towards a different system of society, and at the institutional level. We are more confident about the idea that the role of the public sector, especially in the areas of healthcare and disease prevention, and importance of prompt, creative, responsive policy that relate to the political leadership in the local government level. So, and at the system level, it tells us the necessity of the system change and how to uh, uh, coordinated efforts to address the wildlife, uh, the virus issues from the wildlife or wild nature or deforestations. So there are many individual level, institutional level, or political level, and, and the systems level. So uh, I think many changes are now coming for us and that will impact the coming future. And the current crisis indicate the urgency of transition from the status quo society and I expect a public discourse on system change, public conversation about the democratic model of society versus the totalitarian model that Yuval Harari talked about before in, in the media. So eventually we need to a social consensus for the transition towards a more ecological society. That, uh, that is what the South Korean people are now uh, kind of uh, testing and being tested so we have a big we have a general election next month so this is a chance whether this type of open uh, open model to addressing the virus issues would survive or not i'm very uh, curious about whether this the uh, the policy of this government would have uh, some type of uh, consequences in this sense i hope so otherwise is the model of from china or from israel as uh, Jeremy are worrying about, more totalitarian, more big brother type of uh, governance would prevail at in the global level. Elliot, you have a thought on this? Well, I think one of the one of the issues that I find really intriguing about this this crisis that we have here um, comes up when you compare it to some of the other challenges that we face as, as a human society. Mampela, you started off by reminding us about climate. Hmm? And, and climate is indeed a global challenge. We'll have to work together, all of us together, to try to get that under control and turn things around. But unlike climate, this is an immediate onset crisis. And all of us can see ourselves being affected in the same way on the health front. Yeah? And so that focuses the mind in a way that climate doesn't. There's always some part of the world where you can say, well, things haven't really changed that much, or climate is somebody else's issue today. We know it's not, but the, this crisis, this health crisis, is a health crisis that's similar for everyone. But what is really interesting here is that the impact of this health crisis is not similar for everyone. And it draws out very clearly, in very stark relief, the inequities of our present society. And it's not just in the big and advanced countries, it's everywhere. There are always going to be groups that are at a disadvantage and this crisis is pointing out that some of these groups are disadvantaged in multiple ways. They are more exposed because they have to, to, to earn a living on a daily basis. They have to do so by working in jobs where they are in close proximity to other people. And they have no buffers in case of shocks. So that if they can't earn as much as they did before, they are confronted with falling into destitution. They fall back into poverty. They can't give themselves a kind of a paid sick leave that they might need to take care of a sick child or a sick family member. If they are themselves ill and are forced to stay home, they can earn nothing at all. And there are many other parts of the society where those sorts of constraints, those sorts of disadvantages do not hold. And so one of the things that I hope comes out of this in, in the way we look to the future is this awareness that these inequalities, they are deeply entrenched in the way our societies are organized. And they will not disappear unless we deliberately set out to, to reduce them. And that is a function of government policy, first and foremost, but it is also a function of societal awareness. People have to decide that they no longer want to live in a society where the richest six men own half the wealth of the entire globe. 
they have to decide that they want to have democratic institutions that collectively determine how society functions and not leave that up to the internet giants that were talked about or to um, authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is an opportunity again for us to drive this discourse now, to point out that we have a situation that has the seeds of its own weakness built in and we need to recognize those weaknesses where they are and we need to work against them. And I think one of the the major recognitions that we have to take away from this crisis is that of inequalities, that they are pervasive, they are everywhere. And it's not just inequalities in the distribution of wealth or of income. It's inequalities in the access to education, it's inequalities in the access to technologies. And technology is driving the way our economies function, the way our societies work, the way we communicate with each other. We're sitting here talking to each other over five different continents, and the technology makes that possible. But many people will not be able to join our conversation because they don't have access to the internet. I mean, these are the sorts of inequalities that we need to be looking at because they will determine the structure and the fabric of our society in the decades to come. Mm -hmm. The way they are now or the way we want them to be. Thanks. That's fantastic. Mapela, you you had something to I just want to respond to the question from from the audience about the local and the global. I really believe, and I think Elliot has begun to talk about it a bit, I think the local and global are connected because we are living in a connected world. But what we, those of us on this panel who are committed change agents, have to realize is that the local is very powerful, even within a huge, monolithic, uh, powerful global system, because when people at the local level, and I think the the Korean example is one to watch, really. When people at the local level become conscious of the power they have to shape the future they want, no one can stop them. I come from a country which we didn't get our freedom because of guns or because if the ANC might claim that they liberated us, they didn't. We were liberated by people at local level, school kids, workers, mamas, papas, everyone where they were, raise their level of awareness and use the power, the leverage power of the local to get the national to change. We need to understand that for us to emerge out of this emergency, a stronger, better uh, aligned and higher value system type of global society, we need to use the leverage points where we are sitting, where we are situated, to get that networking effect. Because once you get that networking effect, you get a domino effect, and you really start having an energy that is unstoppable. I dare to believe that the global financial system is like a pack of cards, is crumbling on itself. You shouldn't be surprised if in the end, the dollar gets dumped by people. And then the emperor has no clothes. And power will shift as quickly as you could say, bah. Yeah, and um, one thing I'd I'd add to what Elliot and Monfell have said there is I, I think this emphasis on inequities is really key. And I think that we are going to see this amplified to such an extreme in the next few years that it really may turn in a way that didn't happen after the Great Recession in 2008, but will actually have a fundamental effect on showing this current system and showing its basic moral bankruptcy. And I think already we see here in the United States some major shifts in the public discourse in just the first couple of weeks since this thing has hit. And, and we just, as I said, this is just this is an exponential change. We're going to see massive changes over the next few months and years. But already, you know, there's this concept of the Overton window, which is like the, the topics that are available for normal public mainstream political discourse. Um, and things are outside of that Overton window don't get talked about. Suddenly that window is massively opening up. So the example of like universal basic income, 
is something was kind of really unthinkable in, especially in the United States, uh, uh, in terms of actual mainstream politics. Now it's getting talked about, and in fact, there's a, I think a real possibility that that is one of those kind of themes that could become part of this new, uh, improved world order moving towards. Uh, like a shift in that balance between capital and labor that made one of the biggest shifts in centuries. Um, this concept of homelessness, here where I live in uh, the Bay Area in California, homelessness is this massive, terrible problem that has been plaguing uh, the, the whole of society. But people say there's nothing we can do about it. Suddenly, uh, the governor of California is talking about buying up hotels to house uh, the unhoused people because of the risk of coronavirus. So, and, and so people begin to say, oh, the things that we told were impossible are doable. And in fact, and that's where I think some of these big paradigm shifts take place. When we're looking at climate breakdown, and with all the uh, talks at, at COP about what we need to do, people say, well, one thing we can't do, you know, uh, we need to reduce uh, GDP year by year by this much in order to reduce global emissions. That can't happen. Suddenly we see GDP totally, uh, you know, way, way lower than anybody even dreamed possible. And so what we begin to realize is things that we're told are impossible are actually possible. And then the discourse shifts to, well, how can we make those so-called impossible things happen in ways that are the most skillful, most sustainable for the long term? That's what I think our opportunity is. No doubt that's opening up our imagination, um, yeah. which hopefully yeah, we can live into a better future. Well, I, I, well, this one important question from the audience. Everybody is really wanting to know. All this talk about global systems change and paradigm shifts. They're saying, what's the best way for me as an individual at home to actually engage in systemic response to this crisis? What can I do? Um, what, what are your Let's tips for that? Let's hear what Una has to say. Guna. Let's hear what Una has to say. Yeah, uh, this also relates to the, the question by the audience before, the social economy. Yeah, so as an individual, self-isolation uh, or self is, is very important by now, but at the local level, self-sufficient and independent responding system is important. And in the long run, uh, the coordinated efforts and collaboration in countries is also necessary. So I'm working with the, the city government and many other cities are now adopting universal basic incomes and the circular economy in terms of the, to, to strengthen the resilience. For example, the masks, we, we are short of masks, but the parents and the local governments are working together and producing the so masks and then they distribute that masks for the students, elementary, middle school, and and high school. And after that, not it's go beyond the masks. So they are making the public uh, uh, food systems more organic, something like that. And 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 now we are uh, uh, experimenting some type of the energy shift at the local government. So this type of local uh, economy, local uh, circular economy is kind of the, the, the booming or entering at the, the sites of the people. Wow, this can be a model. This is very small kind of a transitional lab, but it can replace the market economy that does not function in time of disaster. So they are experiencing their with their bodies and their mind, not just their in, uh, head in, in, as a knowledge. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I know we're running out of time. I know Elliot has uh, another meeting to go to. There's, there's one question that I, I always like to end with. So this has to do with hope. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about this coronavirus crisis. Um, and of course, we don't want to downplay the severity of what we're all facing. But, but even in the midst of a crisis, I wonder, what gives you hope for a brighter future? What gives me hope is just the massive change we've seen in people's behavior and mindsets in a matter of weeks, which means the capacity for change is enormous amongst the billions of, of, of the world's people. And so those People who are asking, what can I do? I would say, leverage the huge power you have within yourself and start being more self-reflective 
in terms of your own behavior that may be contributing to all these crises directly or indirectly, this overconsumption that we have taken as normal. There is a new normal. And the new normal is about change and change and more change. I'm very hopeful. We'll have a different world at the end of this pandemic. I have to agree. I think the, the capacity for change in the last few weeks has really been astonishing. Um, what I would like to see is that capacity for individual change, for people to realize how their own behavior needs to change uh, for their own interests, but also uh, in the interests of, of everybody around them. I would like to see that capacity for change linked to a more um, willing acceptance by political leaders of their responsibility, that they do actually have to step away from thinking about just the next election to thinking about what is good for their people and for the world going forward. And I think uh, we have an opportunity here to come together again in crisis, to work together to get this crisis under control. And I hope that this time around, we don't then fall back into sort of nationalistic, inward-looking uh, approaches the way we did after the last big crisis 12 years ago, but that we realize that collaboration, cooperation, uh, working together, that is the way forward. Uh, and that is the way in which we can leverage some of these changes that are happening on the ground at the local level into change at the national level and then change ultimately at the global level in the interest of us all. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and for, for me, the source of hope really re relates a lot to what Manthala was saying is I do think that uh, in fact, it's, it's a response to that uh, final question about what we can do individually. Really, the, the hope comes from that shift in values, the revolution in values that I think may be taking place as this whole thing unfolds. And it means moving from that values of individual uh, libertarianism and a sense of uh, I should look out for number one above everything else to a real focus on the, those pro-social values that actually define what we are as human beings. So it's a matter of, you know, we can show compassion to ourselves and kindness to others around us as we're all going through so much uh, anxiety and fear in this situation. But then, then altruism to our communities and focusing a lot of our attention on what we as communities can do together to actually solve so many of the problems that the bigger powers out there are not responding to properly. So the hope is that those values of uh, fairness and relationships and compassion and reciprocity, community awareness, those values become predominant in our lives. It's what we can do individually every day right now. And together we could actually create a grassroots shift in how our whole global system works and what it's based on. Yeah, I, I hope uh, this will be a turning point towards a different social system, but I'm not that sure yet. But sometimes uh, forgetting certainly helps, but forgetting this expensive experience is really uh, foolish, I think. We must learn a lesson from, he from here. So I don't think, I hope to think that people will not forget this so easily. So I want to find hope in the very fact that people think of hope because they are frustrated, they are in despair, especially for young generations. So when misery deepens, people find hope. I think it is the driving force that makes you cherish hope in mind. And if you have hope, you will dream of a way to realize it. So I think now is the time to think about hope because there is no time it is too late and it the, the virus the, the, you know, the pandemic is a real kind of this signals for us to to do something otherwise social collapse is very uh, on the horizon so probability is very low but I do believe that people, when they cherish hope in, my, in their mind, it's not a science, it's the, the, the philosophy that, that then people do act differently. Self-reflection and they want to change the institution and they want to change, change the ideology of, or market ideology into, because the market doesn't 
work doesn't function in time of this crisis. Mm. So that that would be a kind of dilemma. That that's what I I I'm what I find hope. That's fantastic. Well, thank you all for being here. Of course, we aren't going to solve all the world's problems in detail during a 60-minute discussion, but I think this has been amazing. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and if you want more information about events like this one, uh, please sign up to the Ecosiv newsletter at ecosiv.org. Stay safe and stay healthy, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Let's all of us stay safe. Hope we overcome this too. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.